Hey everybody, it is me, it's your buddy Steve Simons and we're back again on the Alzheimer's.com podcast. I got my radio voice on today because we're doing a really special podcast. This is episode number 154 of the now uh, long-running series, Awesomers.com podcast. And the experts know that all you have to do is go to Awesomers.com slash 154 to see today's show notes, any links or details that we may share along the way. Uh, and today I'm excited to introduce you to a gentleman named Zach Leonard. Zach, say hello. Hey, how's it going, Awesomers and Steve? There he is. Uh, Zach's an Awesomer from way back. We'll probably talk a little bit about his origin story a little bit. But Zach is also a product design expert. Uh, is that fair to say, Zach? Am I, I'm not underselling the expertise you have. Uh, yeah, we're product design and manufacturing experts here at Gemba. Um, you're, you're spot on. Yeah, so, so Zach's part of a company. In fact, I think he's one of the founders of the company, Gemba, uh, G-E-M-B-A-H, yes? Yep, that's right. Is that a German name? How did that name come about? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's actually a theory within Japanese Kaizen manufacturing, and it translates to the value, the place where value is created on the manufacturing floor. So that's loosely what it's based off of. In Chinese, uh, gumba means "let's do this," so it's kind of a dual meaning. Uh, All right, but that's that's what it's that's what it origins from. All right, the, for the Osmers out there keeping score, uh, you just learned two uh, new words: one in Japanese, one in Chinese, and uh, that's a pretty good deal. So, so Zach, let's talk a little bit about the how people use product design, um, and you know, we'll start with the broad strokes, and then we'll dive in. So. How do we see product design in our everyday lives? How does it manifest itself? Yeah, I, you know, if anyone can really be a designer if you have an idea, right? Um, and that's what's the beauty and what we find fascinating about what we do and, and what's so awesome about product design is you can get inspiration from walking on the street. You can get inspiration from sitting in your office. Uh, you know, you have an idea that comes to mind. Right there, you're kind of at the forefront and the start of the process of product design, which is the idea phase. You know, you, you get an idea, you maybe validate it somehow with the market or your friends or your family, and then the next step is, okay, how do I make this real? Uh, and that's where the fun, exciting part really comes to fruition when you start to bring those ideas to reality. Um, and so what we help do at Gemba is really just the process behind taking an idea and a concept and really bringing it to life. Well, and I think that's the important point. So I don't think there's a single human that has, has kind of lived a normal life that hasn't said, you know, if this thing was just twisted a little different or shaped a little different or the handle was a little bigger or a little smaller, right? Everybody's got these little tweaks that they, they talk about throughout their life that would, you know, uh, as I'm making my proclamations about how stupid this thing is, I'm always like, and then life would be worth living, right? So it's, <laughs> I tend to be apparently a drama queen uh, when it comes to that. But everybody's had those aha moments where they're like, gosh, why don't they just do this? And it's my experience that some of the best ideas came from that, that kind of thinking. Is that, uh, do you agree with that? I totally agree with that. There's actually a company here in Austin, Texas, where we're based. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of them. They're called Yeti. And they did exactly that. They took really, you know, basic problems, which are how do I keep my drinks cold? They, and they incrementally innovated on existing products to make them higher end. And what's cool about them is they're making money hand over fist. I think last year they're making close to almost a billion dollars in revenue. And what they're doing is not 
you know, anything that's crazy. They just made a better insulation system for a wine glass or a tumbler or a cooler, right? These are concepts that have been around for hundreds, thousands of years. Uh, they just did it better. Yeah, I do love that example. And I think that's a, it's really a, a very interesting case study. For those who don't know the Yeti story, I encourage you to get out there and do a little research about it because not only is it an impressive company on the financial front, but the fact that their base idea kind of came from prior existing technology. And then they incrementally, as you said, tweaked and made it better and better and better. And that's, I think that is what gives guys like me who are not inherently creative. Like there's very few times that I will say in the middle of the night, oh, I've got this vision for this new product. But it's very often I'll see some existing problem or some existing product and figure out how to mash that up together. So guys like me have a sense of, hey, maybe there's hope for me because Yeti didn't come up with some brand new crazy thing except the marketing side. They took an existing thing and then they said, how do we make it better? How do we make it attractive to our audience? So you, is that a fair uh, generalization I'm making there? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, you know, there's always there's always, you know, these crazy creations that are come out with, you know, backpacks and how to make storage better. I mean, Away is a great example of how they incrementally innovated to include, you know, simplistic design, but also have an iPod char or an iPhone charger, or a USB charger, you know, inserted into the top of their, of their bags. Um, and so they're ergonomically great for the, for the airplane, but they also have a lot more functionality in terms of battery power. Um, and so again, these are just things that, people are coming up with every day and to be at the forefront of that is what fuels me, I guess, because it's, it's just exciting to be on that side of the equation. Well, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but uh, the head of the patent department came out with a, a statement that said everything that can, uh, can be invented has been invented. And so <laughs> I'm concerned that we may have reached the end. Now I do want to put a, a little asterisk next to that. The dipstick who said that literally was the head of the patent office, but it was like 1899. Now, can you imagine the amount of things that have happened since 1899 that this supposedly leading mind in the field of you know patents and, and new technology, that's his opinion at that time. And so oh, for all of those awesomers who think, oh, I can't develop anything, I can't think of anything, the, it's, the world is, I mean, it's infinite possibilities, am I right? That's totally right. I mean, just think about all the technology that's been created in the last 10 years, let alone the last, I guess, 120 now since that uh, smart man gave his opinion on what has and has not been created. Um, but you I mean, you're looking at, you know, tablets, iPhones, um, you know, anything that you can think of electronically pretty much, uh, electric cars. I mean, it's it, the list goes on on what's been created in the last 20 years, right? So... It's, it really is remarkable. And that's the point is there's so much more that can be out there and that can be gained. And uh, I want to give the guy full credit. Charles Holland Duell was the commissioner <laughs> of the United States Patent and Trademark Office 1898 to 1901 and was later, because his judgment was so good, uh, promoted to a United States federal judge. So uh, kudos to the politicians there who uh, really nailed it. But that is yeah, one of my favorite like a lot quotes. Changed. <laughs> yeah, one of my favorite quotes because it just tells you – that you don't have to listen to anybody, that the people who should know the most, who have the most power, whatever, they don't know anything. We're all in the same boat. You know, uh, many awesomers out there at times feel that they don't know anything. They're kind of faking their way through it. And so my point to the awesomers listening is if you have an idea, if you have a concept, it's worthy of pursuing through a product design process. 
And that's what I want to talk to you about next, Zach. What is a typical product design process? Because we can use that word, but I don't think everybody knows what it means in practical terms. Yeah, sure. So I can walk you through, you know, our typical design process to give you some context of, you know, how, how we compartmentalize it. Please. Um, the first step is, is really to get your ideas on paper and we call that the sketching phase. And so what you're doing in the sketching phase is you're getting different variations of your concepts brought into the real world into some sort of 2d rendering. So, you know, if you have an example of like a kitchen blowtorch, for example, you find something online, you have some inspiration of how to make it better. We're going to have a download session with, you know, designer, industrial designer, engineer, whatever it takes to get that product made and then really start fleshing out. Okay. What colors do you like? What materials do you want it to be made of? What is the, how does the functionality work? Do you want it to be battery powered? Do you want it to be gas powered? Do you want it to be some sort of technology that, you know, doesn't exist, right? Do you want it to be Bluetooth enabled? Do you want to be able to turn it on without actually pressing a trigger, right? There's just infinite possibilities of what you can do, but to compartmentalize that all, you use a sketch to do that because it's the cheapest and easiest way and probably the most, you know, I guess, whimsical way that you can get your ideas down on paper. And then you can start having the conversation after you have those sketches out of what do you like? What don't you like? And what is, you know, from there in the realm of possibility of being produced on a mass scale, if you want to go into the mass scale, if you want to be just a custom item and, you know, small batch manufacturer of some high end, you know, high end blowtorch, that's totally fine too. But just know that there's costs that go aside with that. So again, step one is really just to get the, the ideas down on paper with a great designer uh, to make sure that all those factors that we talked about, the color, how it works, you know, what technology you want to have on it are all kind of flushed out into some sort of real rendering. So once you have after this sketch, right. And, and this rendering sounds like you even add color on some of these and I don't, mm -hmm. I'm putting Zach on the spot here, but Zach, if you had any generic sketches or versions of things that you're okay to share with the public, we can put those on the page, uh, and we'll certainly uh, share, uh, obviously we can't share people's secret stuff, but if you have any generic things, I'm happy to put those yeah. on the page for you. No so, problem. I will, I'll share the, I'll share, actually I have kitchen blow torches like we're talking about. Oh, there you go. Perfect. We'll some, stay on point. <laughs> yeah. I, I have some examples of that, the entire process kind of built out there. So I, I use that example because we, it's not proprietary. We just kind of use that as our. Uh, like a generic a visual, thing, yeah. our visual aid. Yeah, our visual well, I aid. haven't burned my kitchen down yet, so it sounds like I need <laughs> a kitchen blowtorch. So we're right on target. So, uh, Oscars, we'll put those on the page just to kind of share what a sketch looks like, right? We we all have these ideas of the terms product design and the notion of a sketch and so forth, but we don't really know what it's like in practice. So that's why I think that what the guys at Gemba are doing, Zach and his his colleagues are. They're, they're taking it and bringing it down to a level that we can understand, right? Because we're, we're ideation people. We're entrepreneurs. We're nutty, you know, inventors. Can we do this? Is this something that we have the potential to do? Well, we can if we match it up with the right resources. So, Zach, once you have the sketch, what happens after that, assuming that people say, yeah, this is, seems like a good idea. We should proceed further. Yep. So, after you've done the sketching, after you have the iteration, you come down to the final you know, rendering in, in 2D. The next step is to get it made into 3D so you can actually start using tools and see what it looks like in a more, you know, real world scenario. So there's a company out there called Vertebrae that I'm, I just got linked up with uh, and they have a way to simulate 
you know, if you have a backpack, what it would look like on your back, or if you have a blowtorch, for example, what it would look like in a drawer or on a, on a desk or something like that. So there's some cool tools out there that you can take these 3d renderings of your product and actually go, you know, see what it looked like in real life. On top of that, it's a great way from a Kickstarter campaign perspective for you to start getting feedback and see if your product is viable, right? You don't need the full thing baked on a website necessarily. You need a really good 3d rendering to show what it does, how it looks, and are, are people going to be interested in it? So that's the next step for us is to get you that collateral in the 3D so that you can actually start looking at how it would be in 3D. If there's some issues that you see, you know, hey, I don't like how this, you know, it looks good in 2D, but 3D doesn't look that great. We can start making tweaks on that 3D model. Um, and that's that's kind of step two of, of everything. Um, so let me and then, jump in there, Zach. Um, so first of all, for those who have never seen a 3D rendering, it's extraordinary. And there's um, different variations and different objectives of these. Uh, we used to use 3D renderings when we would do furniture sales. And we would literally develop the furniture using 3D renderings, put them in rooms. You couldn't tell if it was a photo or a rendering, just to be clear. And <laughs> they were beautiful. And then we would go around to the, the big customers, uh, big box stores or retailers or chains, whatever the case may be, and we would get their feedback on which designs they liked the best. So we might render 40 designs but we might only build 10 designs as a way of you know, testing the market. So I think market validation at that stage is really, really important. And it's way, way cheaper than going all the way through a pre-production mold or, or whatever. And maybe you're coming to those things. Um, but that's something I don't want people to forget. That is a really good thing. And for those who are sticklers about uh, terms of service over at Kickstarter, they may not allow renderings. We don't care. You know, figure out if the program the product has viability using renderings. I think that's really smart. Uh, Zach, what's next? What happens after that? So after that, you get into the CAD drawings and the, and the dimensional data that you can start really giving to factories to start bidding out your process. So you're looking at the bill of materials, you're looking at the sizing of everything, you're looking at the dimensional data. Um, so 2D CAD drawing that kind of draws all that out. Essentially, it's the blueprint. And the analogy I always give anyone starting the product process is, when you're building a house, um, I, th I think this step is really important because it's like going, it's like building a house without the architect. If you go directly to the builder, if you go directly to the manufacturer and you don't have the blueprints of how to build the house, you're giving too much leeway to the builder to make decisions for you. Same thing with the factory. If you give, you just go to them with a concept or a sketch and it's not fully dimensional uh, and all the, and all the build materials and everything isn't already kind of vetted out and, and put onto a piece of paper, they're going to take liberties that you don't want them to take. So I think this is the most important step when you're talking about product design is getting the true design sheet done. And that's again, bill materials, all the dimensional information, really spilling out the blueprint of how to make your product. From there, you can do so many creative different things. You can start doing 3D printing if it's an injection molded item or if it's something that you want to do. And that's a great way for you to see, get a feel for how big and how the product feels in your hand. There's the next step, which would be CNC you know, which is kind of like a, a more tangible, better looking version of your product. And then you can actually also go to a small batch manufacturer in the United States and they can just make a prototype for you, right? So there's plenty of prototyping, you know, shops around the U.S. that would be happy to help you, you know, create a real final version of your product. And that's when it gets really interesting because you can, again, take that to a Kickstarter. You can take that to manufacturers overseas. You can start taking that to manufacturers in Mexico. You can start taking it to manufacturers Pretty much anywhere when you have, you know, the prints or the CNC or the small batch manufacturer version, your prototype, 
and then also the blueprints. That's kind of that, that professional package that we talk about that really sets you apart from the average consumer when you're talking about going to have that conversation with the factory. So ultimately, what you're trying to do so that you know, factories know that you're serious is come to the table with a real professional professional looking uh, proposal for them to actually bid out. They're going to take you way more serious with, with that, all that collateral than they would if you, you know, came to them with just some sort of idea and, and not really thought out. And so ultimately what we're trying to do, because the second part of our business is the manufacturing side is for anyone that comes to us with this idea, the goal for us before they go to the manufacturing side is to get all that collateral in your hands so that you look like a pro when you start going to bid it out to the factories. On top of that, there's also the, the conversation about getting patents, right? So you can get provisional patents, you can get design patents, utility patents, whatever you want to do once you have all of that collateral in your hand. Um, so that's the power of having the design process fully baked out before you start going to the next step. Well, I definitely uh, agree with that 100%. I also want to reiterate to the Osmers out there, when you show up at a factory and you say, hey, I had this idea, I want to burn down my kitchen, so I'm going to need a blowtorch, and, and you just kind of leave them with that, that's not a great start. Uh, probably not for the objective to begin with, but uh, right. you show up with those plans, literally, like an architect, right? The, the CAD or even a physical model of that. There's no question about dimensionality, right? And right. well, you talk about leeway, and I, I have to say, from a fairness perspective, I say that if it's not written down, it's the buyer's fault, not the factory's fault. If, if we don't totally. write down what we wanted, it's our fault, not the factory's fault. And the factory just does what they think is best at that time. Do you agree with that assessment in general? Totally agree. And what's best for them is something that's cheap, right? They're looking at it from a cost perspective um, and repeatability perspective. So the way to do that is to make something that's cheap and easily built so that if it hits, then they can go potentially sell it themselves, right? So if you don't protect it with the patents, with the IP that you have, if you go to them with you know, not a fully baked out plan, you could actually just be giving them a blueprint for a home run that they can just go sell themselves. So again, there's so many variations of what you could be doing wrong. It's just like two extra steps, right? It's not a lot more to actually get this thing done. And again, it might be you know, a couple thousand dollars or five thousand dollars, whatever it is, to get the design done. It depends on what you're making. It could be, you know, fifty thousand dollars, whatever it is. But that's so much more worth it long term than it is if you go to the factory and they make a home run product and then and you aren't able to protect it. For sure. And I also want to say to the Oscars out there, you know, it's it's difficult. We, we may dive into kind of some of the general costing and, and things like that later, but it's difficult to just put a number down and say, here's the cost to develop a product because there's so many variations and so many different things. And so I haven't put Zach on the spot for that yet. And any context we talk about it will be generic anyway, and I'm mostly unuseful. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the, the point I want to get across is that as a, you know, if you consider product design, it's a great kind of barrier to, to decide, is this product really worth the, the time and energy and investment I'm putting in at whatever level it is, right? Right. You say to yourself, well, I'm going to have to put in thousands of dollars, however you do the math on patents, design, et cetera, modeling, um, you know, first runs, whatever it is. And then you go, but I can only sell four of these a day on Amazon and, and you know, one a month on my website or 50 on my website and none on Amazon, whatever the math is, it, 
you you should know what the potential is because then if the juice ain't worth the squeeze, don't do it. Uh, right. I think that's a big part of this process. It really formalizes it and makes it an right. economic thing. Do you agree that they should do math with Zach? Totally agree with that 100%. I mean, there's tools out there that can help you kind of guide that research. Uh, that's also we do that as well to help you know find some cool products out there. But at the end of the day, I mean, I'll, I'll kind of start even at the beginning of the process with the sketching. If you can find a sketch artist that can start thinking about these ideas and right there, you can start getting market validation, right? You can go with this such a cheap route and say, I just want to get, you know, five different variations of a product that I think is going to be a home run. Go ask your friends, go ask your family, go ask your business partners, go ask your, you know, social media groups. Hey, people you trust, does this look like something you would buy? And it's as cheap as, you know, a couple hundred bucks to get a sketch of a product, right? And you just kind of start building that validation, get their feedback, make it more collaborative. Then they're going to be excited when you launch a product and want to promote it probably for you and maybe even be consumers of it, right? And so it's just consistently getting more market validation as you continue to go down that process. So it doesn't have to be expensive off the bat. It can be expensive once you have that validation, but the validation will prove to you that it's worth that investment. Yeah, exactly. So it is staging up. So we left off kind of in that that realm of we're, we're taking plans to a factory. We've got something tangible now. What happens after that? Oh, man, this could go in so many different directions depending on um, what kind of product it is, right? So, you know, the, the designs that are going to be more intensive from a costing perspective are the designs for injection molded items, obviously. Um, and, they're, you know, they're, we're talking when we're talking injection molded items, it's plastics, it's metals, it's glass for the most part. Um, and the reason for that is they have to make molds to complete your design, right? And so that's kind of the first step in talking with the factory is deciding, you know, or I guess before you start even the project is, do I want to, you know, create something that's injection molded or more of a cut and sew item or more of an electronic item? Um, and so there's going to be different costs associated with each one. Just knowing that up front also will help maybe make your decision on what you're tolerance for spending is, right? Um, but let's go down the route of injection molded, right? So, you know, typically there's different types of injection molding. There's different types of plastics that are used. I mean, there's PU, there's PP, there's ABS, there's tons of different types of pellets out there that, you know, all these source material, all these factories that are assembling are going to be sourcing from their suppliers. Um, and so, you know, what they're going to do when they, when they make a mold is they're going to give you the mold price and then they're going to want to make a sample first to give you probably that final price. And the reason for that is they've never made this before. So they don't have a basis for what they can actually sell it to you for and what you should be ending up selling it to your audience for. You may be able to do some market research and kind of test the market on what you think you can sell it for and then go test out that theory by, you know, talking with factories and getting a true understanding of your cogs. Um, but that's really step one when you're talking with the factories is just, you know, maybe you see something that looks similar, you know, find out the pricing of that, of that price of that product that's similar to it. And then start talk, start the conversation off with, Hey, here's what I'm making. Here's the blueprints. Um, let's start talking, you know, dollars and cents on how to move this forward. Yeah. I definitely see that as the, as the right next step, because until you really understand that fundamental cost basis, you have no idea what your margin per potential is and, and will it contribute enough margin for you to, to make a, a go of this thing, right? It's uh, people forget the the layers of cost that go in. So you know we haven't even shipped the product yet. We haven't made it yet, and we <laughs> right. you know we're dealing with costs. So there's all that development cost up front. Often there's a mold cost. Uh, Zach, why don't you talk about how people deal with the the cost of the mold? So let's assume that they've they agree that cogs are good, the manufacturer seems good. We want to proceed. Now somebody's got to make a mold. Am I right? 
That's right. So for, again, those injection molded items, they have to physically make the mold. And usually, depending on how big the item is, depending on what it's made out of, it's, it can cost you, you know, anywhere from a few hundred bucks to thousands of dollars, right? Um, the way I advise my customers to, or our customers to look at this is really either amortized across the entirety of life cycle of the POs or as an asset to your company. Because at the end of the day, that's what you're paying for. You're paying for a mold that you physically own as part of your company and it's making your final product. So you can depreciate that. You can, you know, make, you can take advantage of that. You can also um, talk with the factory about potentially getting reimbursed after a certain number of units have been, you know, made at scale of this, of this uh, product. So those are the conversations that I advise my customers to that we help them with uh, when we start talking about molds is, you know, it might be a large upfront cost, but let's start talking about, you know, scalability. Okay. Let's start talking about how it's an asset on your company. Let's start talking about how you can get reimbursements down the line. Let's start talking about, you know, what it would take if you out, you know, grow past the skill of this factory, what does it take to either move that mold or get a second mold created in another factory? I mean, those are the types of things you want to start to think about as you go to that, that level of investment, because at the end of the day, that's what you need to really think about is if I'm going to make this product, it is a home run or it is a great product and I need to be able to scale. What are, how, what are the ways I can either recoup my cash or scale beyond what I think is possible at this factory? Yeah, that is so important. And that conversation can take a number of different turns as, as Zach talked about. The reality is everybody that my opinion is that you should own your own molds. And um, that means you need to either use some sort of negotiation like, yes, we'll pay you up front on the cost but we're going to set it off against the next 10,000 units or, you know, whatever the, whatever the deal is, but you make sure that you affirmatively own that mold. Um, mm -hmm. We often will sign, uh, we'll have one of our uh, people sign the molds to make sure that they are clear and that, that we know the versions. We also take photos. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we often will take those molds and store them at alternative locations when we're not in production because we don't want the factory to just run some extra stuff in their spare time and ship it yep. to who knows where. Any yep. other best practices that you may throw into there, Zach? Those are all really great. Um, again, I think it depends on the scalability, but maybe investing in a couple molds at the one time. Again, if you think this is going to be a home run product or you think that the capacity of the factory might be out, like that's another route that you can take. Um, again, like you said, putting one, one part of the mold at one factory, maybe the other part at another factory. We have two different materials or regular factories that can then ship it to the assembly factory to put it together. Just try and break up your supply chain as much as you can and also build it for scale. That's, that's the two main things I, I advise the customers beyond what you said. Yeah. Excellent. Wonderful. So now that we've got a mold, uh, what happens from here? Yeah. Uh, once you have a mold, you can start going into full scale production with your factory. And so, you know, now you're in this, the standard operation of, you know, lead times, payments, quality control, logistics, you know, that, that normal purchase order life cycle. Great. So, um, we, so I mean, it's fair to say that from product design to issuing a PO, that's kind of the end of the product design process. Yes. I mean, yeah, I mean, there might, there might be some back and forth between you and the factory to get, you know, some mold done. There's obviously some tooling that might happen down the line. If you know, the mold can't get it the whole way there, then there's some tooling costs that can, then, you know, further enhance the product to be where it needs to be if there's some, you know, die cutting or whatever needs to be done post the mold to make it completely done. Uh, that That's the last fee I think up front you'll have to get the full PO placed. But yeah, once you get all that taken care of, then it's just the normal cycle of placing POs. Yeah. And so I see that as, 
you know, it's a real mystery, this product design uh, process for a lot of entrepreneurs, especially folks that, you know, they kind of, they've done pretty well on Amazon or uh, other channels, um, Wayfair, there's a million channels out there. Mm-hmm. And they, they're like, well, I just kind of found something that was out there. I tweaked it a little bit. Sometimes they didn't even tweak it. They just stuck their own label on it and they've done pretty well. So this idea of product design is like a, a you know, foreign language almost. And since we've already learned two foreign languages along the way, this, uh, this is certainly no problem to pick up as well. So beyond that process, uh, Zach, what are the, any other most important things that people should know about product design? Yeah, I, I think I can't stress enough the the patent side of thing. Doing making sure again, you might think you're. There's two ways to think about this. One is the positive way. Hey, you know, want to make sure that you're protected both in the United States, uh, potentially overseas. You can talk about filing design provisional utility patents. Um, utility patents are probably the hardest to get filed. Provisionals are probably the easiest to get filed, and design is somewhere in between. Most of the products that you know Amazon sellers are dealing with, it's not something that they're going you know to retail right away. They're not setting up their own e-commerce store right away necessarily. So you know I always advise in the provisional design way if it's if it is patentable. Those also match up nicely with the timeline of getting a product launch. Once you have you know a fully baked idea into those blueprints, you can take those blueprints now and start you know talking to product uh, IP attorneys and getting that process taken care of. Um, and then the negative side is, again, you want to make sure you're doing the research that you aren't infringing on someone else's patent, right? So there's a lot of, on the patent side of things, you want to be very careful, uh, you know, hiring a good IP attorney, doing your research on Google patents or the USPTO. Um, that's probably the one gotcha I have. Um, the last part of it is because these things have never been created before on the compliance side of thing, it's really important to make sure that you're getting the right product safety measures in place and compliance measures in place. So you know, items that are meant for children, you want to make sure that, you know, you have the proper testing done with them, uh, the CPSIA testing, the ASTM testing, the CalProp 65 testing. Um, if it's electronics, you want to make sure you have, you know, UL or FCC listing. Um, you know, if it's food, FDA, you know, there's all the different, you know, safety guidelines and regulations that, again, once you, once you get to that final production sample, that's when you can start that process. But those are the two kind of gotchas in the legal concept where, uh, you need to really make sure you're doing your due diligence on both the patent side and the compliance side before you bring this product into the United States. There's no worse story than, oh, I didn't know I had to do compliance, gets caught at customs, gets turned away, and your factory goes, well, that's not my problem. That's your problem. You're the buyer. You're the seller, right? So um, compliance is huge. Patents are huge. Just make sure you're doing your T's and C's when you're doing that. Well, I definitely think that's uh, excellent advice. And uh, for those customers out there, especially if you're already an Empowery member or shareholder, uh, Rich Goldstein, uh, his patent law office does very, very good uh, work. We highly recommend them. Um, for those who are at the Empowery Seattle Summit, they, they are great. Rich is great. And they they do this stuff all the time, and they can take you through that process. So, um I definitely would encourage people to, you know, start that process and get a sense of it from those guys uh, immediately if you have that idea. Now, yep. Zach, my understanding is that you, um, Gemba, is also now um, essentially a vendor to Empowery. So there's some, um, you know, effort that you guys have made to pair up with Empowery and give Empowery a little extra uh, uh, oomph when it comes to knowledge and access. And so we, you know, me as a, a big supporter of Empowery, I want to say thanks for that. 
And, uh, you know, tell us about your plans for not just empowering folks, but, you know, your plans for Gemba for, for 2020. How's this thing going to play out now that you've got it kind of organized and built and rolling? Yeah. What's going to happen? So we're building our technology platform right now as we speak, which I'm really excited about. So right now we're kind of, you know, using email and Trello and different ways to bring all the products together and have a nice, you know, customer experience. But we want to create something that makes it easier, even easier than we can make it for them right now our customers and future customers. So we're building a technology platform that's going to kind of aggregate everything together and give people a way to, you know, do that process that I talked about, not just for design, but from start to finish. So from idea all the way through, you know, fulfillment on, on our technology. So that's, that's kind of the big plan for 2020. Um, you know, we're going to hopefully get a bunch of new customers and, and have a bunch of cool designs that are coming to market. We have a bunch of products right now that are just starting to get rolled out, which is really exciting for us as well. And so just keeping the, the, the train moving on that, um, you know, some potential partnerships uh, otherwise, you know, that are, that are in the works as well. So um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, it's, it's been great so far. Um, we're, we're really excited about the communities that we're helping both from an Amazon side, e-commerce side um, and the retail side. And we're going to keep it going and offer, you know, some, some nice packages to the Empowery group as a result of all the success that's gone, you know, not just with Amazon, but with, you know, your, your sister and with, with you as well, Steve. So, you know, we're, we're honored to be part of that group and excited about what, what it has to come. Yeah. Melissa works really hard, everybody over running the empower organization. And honestly, it's, you know, it's still a labor of love for us, right? This is a, a nascent operation, a co-op of like-minded entrepreneurs with similar uh, objectives. And we all, we need resources like Gemba, right? We need product design resources. We need patent resources that we can trust that are vetted. We mm -hmm. need uh, to have a voice as well, by the way. This is one of the biggest things. As Amazon is, you know, kind of laying down certain things that are not great for sellers and states are running mm -hmm. around doing things that are not great for sellers, we need to have a voice uh, collectively as sellers, and that's a big part of the mission at Empowery uh, as well. So uh, thank you again for the support of the Empowery efforts there, Zach. And um, why don't you just tell us, uh, you know, in closing, what – you know, what do you think sets apart Gemba from other product design resources? Because clearly this is not the first product design company out there. You know, I know what makes it special, but I'd like to hear it in your own words. Sure. I think the philosophy we take from the start is really democratizing the process. You go to a bunch of different firms that can charge you an arm and a leg, and you don't really know if it can be made. We take a different view of we want to make this process really easy, straightforward, and transparent so that you can understand what you're getting at each step of the way. The second thing is because we have the manufacturing side of our operation, we kind of know what you know materials are going to make an impact on cost, what can and can't be made, and we're going to start that conversation with the factory earlier than than you might feel comfortable with. But we're doing it to benefit you, right? So we're going to be able to have that holistic view of taking a product from start all the way through fulfillment uh, that sets us apart from everyone else, as well as the technology play, right? Once that gets up and running, you'll be able to manage this all very seamlessly in one single place. That means, you know, conversations with, with the designers, conversations with the factory, you know, with the factory team members on our end, paying everything in one vendor. I mean, talk about how much of a headache payment is alone to get to, to like five different vendors. If you're talking about design, logistics, your factory, you know, Amazon, wherever you fulfill it. I mean, that, that's just a pain in general. So we're trying to make that all into one easy, workable and manageable software solution that makes it really user friendly for our customers. I definitely love the idea of the platform that 
you know, I'm a big systems guy. All the customers uh, who follow us closely know that I'm always talking about systems. I'm, you know, I'm all, always talking about ERP and, you know, the ability to scale really comes from that platform mentality. So kudos mm -hmm. to you guys for thinking ahead about that. And I want to say to the customers out there that, you know, one of the things that I see that's so unique about these guys is they take an entrepreneurial centric perspective. They don't take a, how do I get as much money out of you as I can? They take a perspective of how do I make this the best experience, the best potential for this entrepreneur. And I think that they're transparent. They'll tell you, hey, this ain't going to work, or here's why this is you know, not viable, because we mm -hmm. all have harebrained schemes in us. Uh, and they, I think instead of them going, well, we'll just milk every dime we can out of this joker and kick it over to the next guy, they don't look at it like that. They think long-term, and that's, that's something that I appreciate and something that I recognize as being unique. So uh, kudos to you guys. For that Zach. well thanks Steve yeah I, I, I will kind of piggyback on that a little bit we do see ourselves as any of our customers partner in crime right we're going to tell you everything matter of fact transparent like you talked about we're not going to share code it but our goal is just to give you you know option a B and C a route to make sure that we're moving moving the plane forward I, I like to think of Gemba as the captain of the uh, airplane there might be some turbulence along the way but we're going to get you there and it's it might be bumpy it might be smooth you know it just depends on what kind of ride it is out there in those areas but we're gonna we're gonna get you there well, as long as you serve uh, almonds instead of peanuts, I'm just so tired of airline <laughs> peanuts. It's just the worst. Uh, so that's fine. Uh, all right. Well, now that we've agreed on the the selection of nuts for our ride, uh, I do want to reiterate <laughs> to, to entrepreneurs and awesomers in general. First of all, this is not just e-commerce. This is any product, any concept that you have for a product. This is something that Gamba has viability to help you with, and something that I think professional help can really accelerate and increase the chances for success in the same way using a patent lawyer. Uh, every time I hear somebody go, oh, no, just file this uh, patent yourself or just file this trademark yourself, I just roll my eyes because I get it. Nobody wants to spend money. But for goodness sake, once you have to defend a patent or a trademark or you actually need to enforce those things, my gosh, the difference of doing it yourself, DIY, which is, uh, you know, really does mean do it yourself, but it should mean doesn't really work. I know that doesn't add <laughs> up, but uh, um, versus having a professional on the team. And so having Gemba as a resource, having a, you know, somebody like Rich Goldstein and other links in that chain, that's what makes a really solid company, in my opinion. And totally. uh, I, I just, I really encourage people to think of that as the full spectrum of services and resources because it's like, you know, instead of having to hire a sketching person, an engineer, and a you know, materials expert like all these guys I have on staff, you just get to take a piece of them and, and work your process through. So it's a really cool idea. Zach, any parting thoughts for the awesomers out there? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the goal of what we're trying to do is really just empower, you know, anyone to have an idea and be able to make that process come to life really fast. I think, you know, what H&M what did for fast fashion and, and Zara, they try to make the ability to create new concepts in fashion and get them to market really fast in one month. That's the ultimate goal of Gemba is to try and speed up this production life cycle, democratize the process for product design. Uh, and, and I think, you know, if that's our mission. Um, it's going to take some awesome ideas to get to that point. So, you know, we're excited about the potential of, you know, making all of the Empower Group, all the awesomers, everyone out, every dreamer out there, the ability to create their products. So, I mean, that's what fuels me every day. That's what fuels the companies every day. Uh, we're excited about where we're headed. And, and if there's anything that we can do to help 
you know, anyone out there, whether it's in Awesomer, it's in Powery, it's anyone who's listening to this, you know, we're, we're happy to help in any way we can. And if we can't help you, we're going to refer you to people like Rich or Steve or, or experts that, you know, eventually we're going to be partnering with. So, um, yeah, it's, it's all great. I love it. Well, thank you for that, Zach. Uh, Osmer, is this again, episode 154. And whatever images Zach shares with me, whether they're sketches or you know, a cat or any, anything else that he cares to share, I'm going to put on the uh, osmers.com slash 154 uh, page for you. And by I, I use the royal I in that case, which is somebody's going to do it. I don't know who's going to do it. But it's unlikely to be me. Um, <laughs> but it will show up there eventually. And uh, what I want to, to remind Osmers, we'll also try to put in some links and things like that. Uh, if you're an Empowery member or shareholder, Empowery's probably got some links for you as well and can give you the details of their deals. But I want everybody to just understand, product design can be a true differentiator for you. This is not a, ah, you know, uh, I can make another cell phone case without any help from a product designer. Well, maybe you can, and that's fine. But I guarantee you there's product designers making cell phone cases that actually sell. There's product designers making <laughs> kitchen spatulas that actually sell. And every right. other kind of mundane product, if you add design, that's what can lead to sales. Right? Exactly right. God, Couldn't agree more. So good. Yeah. All right, Zach, listen, I'm glad we're on the same page. Uh, I'm excited about this. I really love what you guys are doing. Uh, thank you again for coming on the Awesomers. And Awesomers out there, uh, I'll see you next time. Huh? And don't forget, go leave a review, subscribe, do all that stuff that I tell you to do every time and that you haven't done yet, for goodness sake. Get out there. Let's, let's do something, everybody. Thanks again, and we'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye. Thanks, Dave.